Hey, good morning, Collective. Pastor Ryan here. I hope this finds you doing well as you are spread out around the West Side, whether that's on phones or TVs or laptops, by yourself, with your roommates, with your kids, your spouse, whatever it is, I hope this finds you doing well. Uh, Our pastors are are praying for you, and uh, it's been in the midst of the insanity, one of, of my great joys over the past few um, months of, of being a part of Collective has been able to just share some of your celebrations and, and what God's been doing in you, but also just to be there and pray with you in the midst of some of us that are having loss or layoffs, whatever's going on. Um, we're here for you. We're praying for you. And uh, it's a distinct honor to be able to do that. Uh, today, coming out of Easter, we're going to continue in what we've been doing over the past few weeks and we'll continue to do for another two weeks is as we moved into the now infamous, what everybody refers to as new normal in uh, social distancing and and shelter at home, safer at home and all these things, we did a little mini series. We took a break from the gospel of Mark, which we're going to return to in three weeks, but we took a break just to kind of zoom out and actually look at what we as the pastors believe Jesus is saying to our church right now. And we've been doing that by looking at these series of take heart statements of Jesus, specifically throughout uh, his, his life and ministry, where Jesus would come to people who are isolated and afraid and anxious and fearful, like, hello, and, and told them to take heart. And it wasn't just a, you know, you know, take heart, you know, grow up or be more courageous. It, the take heart was always based in who Jesus was. And so as we've been reflecting on this moment, we have just uh, felt a deep conviction that Jesus is calling for us to take heart, but not simply in the take heart of the world that is just based in uh, that it's chaos. You might as well just, you know, do not freak out and make it a little bit better, but to take heart specifically in light of who Jesus is to us. And so we've been examining those stories. This week brings us to my favorite of them, uh, Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22 is where we'll be. And in this story, it's, it's one of my favorites, not only because it's an, an incredible miracle, but there's so much wonderful work that Matthew's doing in crafting this story. And even more than just Bible nerd stuff, this story has been a regular metaphor and image that I've been returning back to for myself over these past few weeks. And I'll point that out as we go. Um, But but without bearing the lead anymore, Matthew chapter 14, we're going to read verse 22 through through 33. You can uh, follow along if you have a Bible. Uh, I'll read through this. And then I'll pray for us, and then uh, we'll, we'll just we'll start moving through. So Matthew chapter 14, beginning in uh, verse 22. Follow with me, please, where it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he, this all being Jesus, had dismissed the uh, crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But... The boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered out to him, Lord, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you out on the water. And Jesus said to him, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when Peter saw the wind, he became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And so Jesus immediately reaches out to his hand, takes a hold of him 
saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Let's pray together. And so, Father, we're thankful for this story, as uh, fantastical as it is, uh, these stories of miracles, uh, often remind us not only of who your son Jesus is, but uh, the way the world actually is and what it means to be humans within it. And so my prayer today is that each and every one of us, that we might find some invitation that you're calling us into in this story, to name our place and to see uh, Jesus, you there, calling us to take heart and uh, in, in even inviting uh, us to join you in your uh in your reign and rule over all things, and that peace that comes as we rest in your reign and rule. And so, God, help us just to see your son in a new way through this story. Uh, be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. So in the Take Heart uh, series that we've been looking at, the way that you could just call this story is to take heart, he is with you. Take heart, he is with you. As you, as you see, as you just read over the story, there's the take heart statement. But what's the take heart based in in this story is specifically the fact that Jesus says, it is I, I'm the one that's with you. And so as we read through this today, that's the thing that I just, the one little you know nugget for you to carry is this, that the reason why I can take heart is because Jesus is with me. To give us a roadmap for the text, uh, which which I do each week, uh, just as a way to break down the text. This is like Bible nerd thing. You don't have to do this just to be a preacher. Even when you're reading the Bible and there's portions that become hard to understand all that's going on, zoom out, start clumping together verses, and just look for a little roadmap of how the story progresses. It, it just makes it super help, helpful. The other thing is if you're preaching and you give people the roadmap, then uh, they can know if when you're done and how close you are to being done. And so uh, here, here's the roadmap so you guys can, can track with me. In verses uh, 22 through the first half of 25, it all revolves around the question, where is Jesus? Okay. The second half of 25 through 27 revolves on the question, who is Jesus? 28 through 32, Peter's walk on the water is all about the question, what is faith? And then finally in verse 33, that little verse there is uh, capstones at all with this little question of what is worship? So where is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is faith? And what is worship? Let's go back to 22 through 25 and let's just, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's look over this and begin to just see what's going on in the story. Okay. So Verse 22 says, uh, immediately, this immediately word shows up uh, constantly. You'd think we'd burn Mark's gospel, how much it shows up. Uh, and this That was a weird Bible note. I'm sorry. For those of you who are like, what are you talking about? Immediately is used a lot by Mark. Matthew doesn't use it as often. Sorry, this is a bad Bible nerd. Okay. Anyway, um, okay. Immediately, Jesus says, so there's a language of of, of drive. And it says immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. And made is like a really soft word here. If you look at different translations and how they play around with it, or if you go back to the Greek that Matthew is writing in, it is this word of forced, compelled, urged, or insisted. It's a term that's not used of Jesus anywhere else in the gospels. So this is not Jesus is like recommending, you guys should go for a boat ride. I'll, I'll catch up with you. It is a, de- it's a demand that he's playing. Get in the, you guys get in the boat, go to the other side, go, 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 go. It's compulsive. You guys got to go now. So he gets them in the boat. They go before him on the lake. And then verse 23, Jesus goes, and you know, this goes back to a couple weeks ago before, you know, California, the whole world kind of went into lockdown, um, with Jesus's practice of silence and solitude. Here we see it again. Jesus regularly withdraws. He goes and is alone in the presence of the Father for prayer. So Jesus does this, 
the camera pans back down to the Sea of Galilee where we focus on these guys that were compelled, forced by Jesus to get in the boat. And how's their ride going? It says they're being beaten by the waves or tortured by the waves. The wind is against them. It's contrary. This is, it's, they're in the middle of a storm. For us, you know, we think of a boat ride of what, what, and maybe this is what they thought they were going to have when they got on the boat that night was, you know, we think of vacation, we think of a fishing expedition, we think of the the place, the sea and waters is a place of, you know, relaxation for us. It's the wallpaper on your computer, on your phone, we, you know, or on your, your TV. We look at pictures of the ocean and sea creatures in the beach and it's relaxing for us. For these disciples being raised in, in, it, as Jews in Palestine in the first century in the ancient Near East, this this whole understanding of how they saw waters is completely different than us. And a lot of that is based in the fact that these storms that would happen on the Lake of Galilee were seriously no joke. Especially these ones that came in from the east. They were called Sharkia winds. They were it's the uh, Arabic word for a shark. And so these big winds would come in from the east out of nowhere, whipping up storms, being quite severe, whipping up the waves across the lake, causing damage to property or agriculture, even, even death. To be caught up in a Sharkia windstorm in the midst while you're out on the lake is not a safe place to be. So it's no wonder that these, um, these men as Jews understood this larger understanding of the day where the sea and the waters was not the relaxing wallpaper, you know, at work that you take a break and minimize everything and take a deep breath. Sea, the waters were associated with chaos and danger. Really, it just became, you talked about waters as a way of talking about everything chaotic in this world. It was a way of talking about enemies and, and rebell- rebellions and armies and even pandemics. A spiritual oppression and demons and stuff. All of this language was used and they used the metaphorical imagery of waters, of seas and floods, of waves. It's such a common theme throughout the Bible. The shortest quote that I could get was just to recommend a book for you. It, it is such a, I mean, this book from uh, Chaos to Cosmos, Sidney Gradonis, how's that for a name, uh, traces uh, the themes of chaos and order throughout the Bible and literally, like his opening chapter on chaos is in order to understand chaos in the scriptures, you, you just have to understand the metaphor of oceans and seas. And then he goes, he doesn't give me like a nice little quote for you guys. Um, but that book, if you're interested, but the whole idea why I point that out is from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, the whole story of the Bible, this, this language is one that's going on here. So it's, it's clear that whether or not it's Matthew doing this intentionally, we're meant to be reading into the storm in the waters here that this is a this is one a historical tale about what happened to these guys one day on the seas, but at a deeper spiritual level and the spirit's inspiration, this is actually a, a story about being caught up in the waves of chaos, whether that's war or pandemics. That this is the largest. There's a deeper story that's going on here. But let's keep, let's keep going. Let's just keep playing around with that. In verse 25, we we find out that the sea is against them, the waves and the wind, and and it says in verse 25 at the first half that in the fourth watch of the night. This is sometime between three and six in the morning. So this has been. If they left early evening is what it what it sounds like based off of some of the other clues in the text and from the other gospels is this is upwards of eight hours of grueling paddling labor trying to get across the sea but making no headway and now stranded a long way from the shore they're they're in the middle of the sea of galilee 
And so they've been caught up in this unrelenting storm. They're hours without sleep now. They're exhausted and scared. Chaos and death are slamming against their boat. And the question likely on their minds is where in the world is Jesus right now? The one who just a few hours ago compelled us and called us and forced us to get into this boat and get across the sea has now left us up Sharkia Creek without a, without a paddle. And so where, where is Jesus right now? The big fear is yes for their lives, but at a deeper level is where's the Jesus who called us and forced us to get into the water? Have you ever felt like this? <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right now. How have you, do, do you, do you feel what the disciples are feeling here? Where you felt compelled by Jesus into something, a clear sense of calling. And then as you got into it, you felt like he was entirely absent from you to find great difficulty. Once you're there, afraid, alone, exhausted, sleepless. Maybe it's, you know, 2020, you had the vision board and you had the prayer and the, the rule of life and the new practices of Sabbath or silence and solitude or opening and studying your Bible every day and deep community and being a part of whatever it might have been. You had something that you were dedicating this year and you feel like this is what God's calling me into in 2020. And we get like a few months in and it all goes down the toilet and not only just down, oh, out, but the, the presence of now this, this chaos storm of COVID-19, where you feel the moment the waves are beating against the boat, your boat is in danger of tipping. I've been doing a preparing for marriage class that we had planned a few weeks ago. The idea was to do it in person, but we've been doing it over Zoom. And so it's been so interesting to talk to these couples who over the past year at some point proposed to their fiance, and now we've been talking through with them. They had set the date, and now the date is all up in the air. Some of them were planning for you know June, the begin June first, and now it's we're just kind of waiting to see what happens. What's June going to look like? Uh, David and Sophia in our church, they had proposed, planned the wedding, had family coming in from overseas. At first, it was just postponing, then moving to outright canceling, to then moving to last Friday. Um, I put my suit on and we did social distancing wedding over Zoom, with just me and them too. It, it, but but talking to them through this process was not just like, you know, we'll figure out, we'll roll. There were tears. It was painful. It was scary. It was even causing doubts and concerns about the marriage itself. Like, this is what, what happens. Some of you are in a similar place as I've talked to you where you've been uh, laid off or you're on furlough. There's just confusion. Whether you're single or you're married or you have kids, that all of these different levels of not having work is not only bringing in fears for the future, but even like, what do I do with myself right now? There's confusion. You feel the winds pressing up against the boat. I know for me, just has been the thing is, you know, last year we had a clear sense of conviction and calling that God called us to Los Angeles to join Collective. And uh, we got down here and you know, it was right around the time that we got the job that we found out that uh, that Aaron, we found out that Aaron, my wife, was pregnant with our second, and so it's just been this exciting, like, yeah, God's with it. We're on the boat ride, right? This is so much fun! Yay, Jesus! Like you're watching him go up the mountain. Bye! Thanks for the free boat ride, you know. And then we get out here, and then the wind start picking up. You know, it starts with. You know, something like within Los Angeles, you know, like uh, Kobe Bryant's death. And it's just like, what? Okay, this is weird. Like, wasn't, you know, thinking that, you know, our city would lose, like, it's king or whatever, you know, as soon as they get here. And then this pandemic comes and everything about how we do church and developing relationships and being able to pastor and get to know everyone better is just gone out the window. And then you throw a pregnancy in the midst of that. And me possibly not being able to be in, um, 
being able to be in the delivery room, but then having to leave and Emma, our daughter, not being able to come to the hospital and family members, not if they even came, they would have to be quarantined for two weeks before they could see him. Like this is the, the whole thing is, okay, you're going, Jesus, where are you? Like you called me to this and now you feel quite distant. We all have these moments where although Jesus maybe didn't send the storm, it does feel like, and it, he did send us into it. And now it feels like he's absent. The question is, is Jesus actually absent? What hope is there? And that's what brings us to the next question, which is, uh, who is Jesus and where is hope? Verse 25, fourth watch of the night, three, six in the morning, big storm. And what do the disciples see? They see a figure walking on the water. And this, the, Matthew tells us it's, it's Jesus who's doing this. So Jesus walks on water. What in the world's going on here? Well, First, let's just start with maybe some of the explanations from uh, my my friends that don't identify as a Christian, not really friends, but uh, different thinkers on, okay, how do we deal with this, this account? Because for them, they see that the Gospels are eyewitness accounts that we have to deal with. And so what they'll lean to is um, some of them will argue that what Jesus has done is um, he's walking on a non-Newtonian fluid, like oobleck, when you mix cornstarch and water. And if you've ever, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, you, if you punch it, it, it's it's solid. But if you slowly press into it, then it's it it functions like an actual a liquid. And so, what they their belief is is that um, one of two things: either Jesus made a big deep trough like in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and then made it so that it came up to the water levels, but then it went down, and that was filled with some non-Newtonian fluid that Jesus walked on. But then it looked like he was walking on the water to the disciples. The other one is that an earthquake happened and released sediment in that specific part of the sea that Jesus was able to walk on. Um, so that's an option. The The other one, another theory is um, that there was actually a, a patch of, of uh, floating ice that had happened, um, that Jesus wasn't actually walking on water, but he was surfing and just appeared to be walking. Uh, and then the the final um, kind of big option that's given for if Jesus appeared to be walking on water, that these are eyewitness accounts, that it must have been aliens that it was an advanced technology of aliens that basically they worked with Jesus to keep us from advancing in technology so that we wouldn't get destroyed by other aliens. And so uh, they gave Jesus um, anti-gravity shoes in his sandals. So if I don't understand it, it must be aliens. Um, okay. So obviously I just to think through this, like these are, these are the genuine arguments that they have. And so, okay, non-Newtonian fluid, where's Jesus getting cornstarch? How is Jesus building giant mountains within the sea of Galilee to make it look like it? And how is it, how did he get out there without a boat? Like you can just play around with this. There's no earthquake recorded that would do anything like this to the sea of Galilee. We've never seen full examples of how that would work. Even non-Newtonian fluids require hard, constant pressure. So Jesus would have to be like running in place the whole time. And then if he stops, like Peter does and sinks in, it's not water that you pull them out of they 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 look like a swamp thing and that probably would have been in the story there's no records of floating ice in the sea of galilee around this time of year and in the midst of a windy storm like this that would cause the disciples to fear that jesus probably wouldn't just appear like he's walking we can just go through and then alien you want to argue you know evidence for something let's go back to the historical basis for the existence and life of jesus rather than aliens although that is fun to talk about now this is what what they're dealing with is is that they're we, they're taking the gospels as eyewitnesses accounts that we have to do something with Jesus on water and people don't walk on water so it must not have happened it must have been one of these examples the other thing is a lot of people just say is oh we just can't trust the gospels they themselves are fiction to that uh, 
one little book that can we trust the gospels by Peter J. Williams. The reality is, is that the gospels lean themselves and, and just they emerge as eyewitness documents of the life of Jesus. Even little things like referring to the Sea of Galilee, like we talked about this back at the beginning of the year, as the Sea of Galilee. People don't call it the Sea of Galilee. They didn't grow up on the Sea of Galilee. And specifically at this time, and it's just, we have an eyewitness account coming up here. So without spending that much more time on it, let's just assume that these are eyewitness accounts, that this is a historically true story, and that Jesus is actually walking on water. That that is what the disciples are seeing, because that is actually what's happening. So what is their response to seeing this thing walking on water? It's it is a ghost, or in the, it's the it is a phantasma, it is an apparition, it is a you know. There's legends of the of their time of demons or spirits or ghosts of evil people that that specifically haunted in the storms on the waters again. The sea is a place of chaos and disorder, not a safe place to be. And so they're with you and me. When they hear about somebody walking on water, their brain goes, that's not real. That doesn't happen. It's not, hey, Jesus. It's They, they don't know what it is. So they start freaking out. They're not stupid ancient people. What is it? They're terrified. And so they're freaking out. And what does Jesus say as he walks on the water to them? One, being close enough that they could see he was walking on the water because they can hear him in the midst of a windstorm. What does Jesus say? He says, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Right in the middle of the story, literally 90 words before and 90 words after in this little story that we're reading, Jesus says, take heart. Do not be afraid. And then it's, it is I. So that call to take heart, it is that the Greek word we keep coming back to, tharseo, one word in the Greek that means courage or boldness to have a resolve in the midst of a testing or trial or fear. It is what Moses said to the Israelites in Exodus 14 before he parted the waters. Take heart, God will work salvation in the waters parted. Jesus here, like a greater Moses, doesn't just part the waters. He says, take heart as he walks on them. But it's more than just a new Moses that's happening here. Jesus says, not just take heart, but it is I. It is I. Now, like we just did with Arceo, I know some of you guys find this interesting. Some of you don't. And I, I don't know how to, to teach this part without doing this. So you're going to Greek out with me. I promise you it's worth it to see what Jesus is actually saying in his context. It is I, in the Greek that Matthew's writing in, is this phrase, ego and me, literally the word um, I am, the words I am. So Jesus on one level is saying, uh, not a ghost, I am, it's me, Jesus. Like it's a way of in, of, of calling out, of, of pointing to yourself. I am, it is, it is me. He's introducing, he's revealing himself as not being a ghost. But there's a deeper level that some of you, and you're just hearing, I am, the, the, the things are firing. Throughout the Old Testament, God actually has a name. In the Jewish and Christian tradition, God actually does, this is not just God, God has an actual name. He reveals himself to Moses and to the people of Israel through this name, I am, is the name of God. The first occurrence of this is back in Exodus chapter 3, where God introduces himself to Moses as I am. In Hebrew, it's Ehaya, or in the Greek, Ego Emi. You see, for I am's people, Israel, they refer to him not as I am, but as he is, as Yahweh, the name of God. And out of reverence, oftentimes in our Bibles, when, when that name appears, we translate that as the Lord, or uh, in, in, even in, in some um, Jewish cultures today, would refer to it as, as Hashem, which is the name, just the way it's the name, the, the special name is when you read over, you just read the name, but most just put in Lord. And so... On one level, that's good. We want to have reverence for the name that God reveals himself as, but it also 
causes us to just see Lord as Lord, you know, and not as a personal name of God. And so there's, that's a whole nother conversation here. But to bring it back to this is Jesus here in saying ego and me, he is uh, not only uh, identifying himself to the disciples by saying, hey, not a ghost, it's me. He is also claiming and identifying by using the name of God. This is Jesus sharing in some way in the identity of Yahweh, of the God, of the creator God of Israel. And that gets for, maybe you're, okay, Ryan's grasping at straws. It becomes explicit in what we see Jesus as doing in walking on the water. Again, you and me and all of our friends that want to go to non-Newtonian oobleck fluids or aliens go, people don't walk on water. There are laws of nature that keep people go whoop, when they go into water. That's not what happens. And the Jewish scriptures and these men as Jews agree 100%. The ancient Near East, people don't walk on water. But for Israel there was a poetic way of referring to Yahweh, to the creator God, as the one who walks on the waters. You can read about this in Job chapter 9, verse 8, where the creator God, I am, he is, the Lord, Hashem, he treads on the waters. It is something that only God does. It's a way of talking about God's lordship over everything, even the chaotic and untamable waters and everything that they represent, that, that those things are not chaos to God and that as they rush and go, that God is actually ultimately sovereign over them. And as we're going to see, able to pick his people out of them. It's the work that God does in the Old Testament. And so the identity of Jesus here is the source for the take heart and the do not fear command. How, why can, why can the disciples take heart? Why can you and me take heart and do not fear? Because the Jesus that we know is the water walking, chaos calming creator God of Israel, the creator God in flesh, or as Matthew puts it earlier in his gospel, Emmanuel, God with us. And so the basis of your take heart, you have people right now that you want to you know, tweet and Instagram, I'm going to go on my rant for a second. You want to tweet and Instagram, and we do this about of, of non, not having anxiety or dealing with fear or dealing with, and that's good. We need to work for mental health. Underlying that is the, the deep reality that for Jesus, the take heart cannot be based on looking at your circumstances and cannot be based on your own strength, but must come from who he is and the presence that he brings to you. And so I, that's not my, I'm not trying to slam um, my friends that don't identify as a Christian that are calling for mental health and managing anxiety and fear. We need to do that. And at the same time as a Christian, my deep desire is for people to see that ultimately Jesus can offer that in a way that is lasting. But what is, sorry, so what is the response for who Jesus is? What does it look like to take heart, to do not fear? And that is Peter's response, verse 28. In verse 28 through 32, Peter exemplifies for us a great breakdown for what faith is. What is it? Well, it's just three little things right here of what faith is. First, faith is calling Jesus Lord. Notice here that Peter refers to Jesus as Lord. And this can be used to refer to a master, ruler, or king. You call them, you know, your Lord. Uh, for some reason, Lord Farquaad from Shrek is the first thing that comes to mind. So my, my fellow millennials, we get that one together. Um, but, but also, like I just talked about it a moment ago, out of reverence for the creator God, they would often switch his name into the text for when they would translate it and put it as Lord as a way of giving reverence to his name. I would argue that whether or not Peter knows he's doing it intentionally, maybe he's just calling Jesus master right now, rabbi, 
there's a deeper reality of what Peter will proclaim in his when Jesus sees him when he sees Jesus resurrected. Sorry, and calling him Lord because he's he's uniting him with the Creator God of Israel. The first mark of faith is where we look at Jesus and we call him Lord, both Master, King, and Ruler, and also we see him sharing the divine that he is. I am that that is the first mark of faith. The second mark of faith is then asking Jesus as our Lord to command us. And that's what he says. If it is you, Jesus, if it is you, Lord, command me to come to you, to follow after you. For Peter in this specific moment, this deep revelation of who Jesus is that doesn't happen uh, from here is not necessarily us walking on water. I'm not going to go out and you know go down to the beach this weekend, one, because it's closed, but, and, and, and begin, believe that, you know, because that was the specific moment. This is descriptive, not prescriptive is a way of saying that. But what is descriptive is that Jesus calls each and every single one of us to follow him in the way of love and obedience and trust. To call Jesus Lord is to trust him into obedience, physical, embodied, walking, talking, living obedience. And it may not be walking on the waves of the water, but it could be all that the waves represent of walking on chaos of hatred and sin and selfishness and pride and anxiety. That these are the things that Jesus is calling us to walk over as we walk in, into him. But the thing is, is that Peter reveals to us that this is not a blind faith. Peter doesn't just go, oh, Jesus is here, guys, and just jump out. He sees the wind. He's been a part of this for eight hours. He knows what's going on here. And so this isn't just blind faith for Peter. This is in light of what's going on. I'm still, I'm trusting Jesus in the midst of my fears. Uh, Manning points this out in his book, Ruthless Trust, uh, Brendan Manning for the win. Um, where he says this, that what we see in Peter is not faith without doubt because they need one another to exist. And that's not what this story is revealing to us. So let let me read this and then I'll I'll show how this connects. Uh, Brendan Manning writes, there can be no faith without doubt, no hope without anxiety and no trust without worry. These shadow us, I love that language, from dawn to dusk. Indeed, they appear even in our dreams. As long as we withhold internal consent to these varied faces of fear, of anxiety and worry, they are no cause for alarm because they're not voluntary. When they threaten to consume us, we can actually overpower them with a simple and deliberate act of trust. Jesus, by your grace, I grow still for a moment. And I hear you say, take heart. It is I, don't be afraid. And I place my trust in your presence and your love. Thank you, amen. And so what Manning says in Ruthless Trust here is that that what's going on with Peter and Peter's picture here is not somebody that's walking out in, in, in an absence of fear and anxiety and worry, but actually it's in the midst of that anxiety and worry he's running to Jesus. And so Peter's fully aware of what's going on. The issue for Peter in where he begins to sink is not that he had fear and anxiety, but that his attention shifted. He became preoccupied with them. It's what causes him to not walk to Jesus, but begin to sink. The same is true for you and me. You see, so often we paint faith as in the absence of doubt, as in the absence of anxiety or worry. The reality is, is that true faith holds those things in tension and in doing so is able to walk in the midst of the storm. It is when one gets lifted up over the other. There are some people that walk on the water by ignoring all of the fears. And at some point, those fears overtackle them and they begin to sink or 
in the going back and forth of each day, we find one step that's above and then one step that we sink in. There's a different dynamic that plays out for each and every one of us. That as our, our preoccupied attention shifts from Jesus in the midst of fears to our fears with Jesus somewhere in the midst of them, we begin to sink. The sad thing about anxiety and fear is that they often become a self-fulfilling prophecy. What I mean by this is what's Peter's fear now that he's, that he's moving is, is that I'm going to sink, I'm going to sink, I'm going to sink. And as he lifts his attention from Jesus onto his fear that he's going to sink, that's actually what happens is he begins to sink. You see, this is a realistic portrait of faith. The point of the story in, in watching over Peter now is not that we mock him, but that we see ourselves in this, where bold faith and doubtful fear happen within minutes of one another. The warning of Peter's walk is a preoccupation of fear that distracts us from the command of Jesus to come to him. And so good faith in, in what faith is, sorry, to come back to this is again, calling Jesus Lord. It's asking Jesus as Lord to command us. And third, it's asking Jesus as Lord to save us. That is that prayer that he makes. We're saving. We need you to drown us. You see, this is true in that initial moment for you and I, when we come to faith in Jesus for that first time, when we call him Lord, when we ask him to command us, that that is a sense of saying, save me, get me out of this boat that with you, Jesus, even on the waters is safer than the boat that I've been trusting. At the same time, even as we make that journey to Jesus, there are moments when our faith will falter and we need Jesus to catch us. The good news of this story is that it is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. What I mean by that is in that moment, in all of Peter's fear, the thing that saved him was not him reclaiming his faith and jumping back up onto the water. It was calling out to Jesus as the one that could do that for him. The reality is, is that even when you and me falter in our fear, Jesus remains faithful to us. And so Jesus catches Peter. And what does he say? little faith, or oh, you have little faith, or just little faith. Why did you doubt? It is both a term of endearment and a pointed question that he makes. Little faith, I've got you. Why did you doubt? And what's interesting is that Matthew doesn't give us Peter's answer. And I think that's large in part meant to be because Matthew's provoking us to ask what our answer would be in the same position. Not just if we were on the waters, but over this past week. Why did you doubt? Was it the size of the waves? Was it that you just didn't trust Jesus? Was it that you forgot who you were with Jesus? That you forgot him? You forgot you were with him? Was it the sinking? Was it that what, what was it that led to you doubting? And so out of these three movements of what faith is, three questions that I just want to ask, First, for those of you who don't identify as a Christian, what would it look like for you to pray, Jesus, command me? What would it look like for you to call on Jesus as Lord? And then out of that faith in Jesus as Lord, to step out of the boat. What would that look like? I'm not necessarily inherently saying you have to do that today. All I'm saying is in your imagination, if this story was true for you, what would it look like for you to call Jesus Lord and step out of the boat? For those of you that maybe you identify as a Christian, what would it look like for you to keep your eyes on Jesus step by step in the midst of your fears? Maybe it's something as simple as that prayer outlined by Brennan Manning a moment ago. 
to still yourself and just to remind yourself of Jesus' words, take heart, I am with you, do not fear. And then to go about your day out of that place of reminding yourself that Jesus is with you, specifically the Jesus who's the God, who is the chaos calming, water walking, God in flesh. For those of you that are Christians that you feel like your faith is faltering or this past week, past weeks, it has faltered, what does it look like for you to pray, save me, and to allow Jesus to catch you? You see, we often look at Peter's mark of faith or his failure of faith here as uh, as as an absolute failure. And on one level it is, and yet we need to zoom out and appreciate Peter's larger story and what that means for our own faith. You see, Peter's journey is marked by moments like this, failures of faith, where it's hard, honestly, for us to pin down when Peter, quote unquote, became a Christian. Because it keeps happening so often where he repents, he puts his faith in Jesus, he does some bold move of faith, and then a page later or a moment later, he starts to sink, and Jesus shows how his faith was actually quite weak. See, it's hard to pin down when when Peter became a Christian, really, truly, and honestly, it can be kind of true for us as well. That on one level, it can be difficult at times when we look over our lives. I know for me, some of us, we have bold moments where Jesus just showed up and we became a Christian like Paul. Some of us, it looks more like Peter, where we're taking a few steps, we're following Jesus, we're doing something big for Jesus, and then we begin to sink and Jesus has to bail us out again. See, faith is honestly, it's like riding a bike, that, the, that each failure actually precedes greater faithfulness in the moment to come. What I mean by this is the Peter who sank here would go on on Good Friday to deny Jesus three times. After the resurrection and even giving the Pentecost sermon where 2,000 people get saved in a day, great faith, he then goes on to lead the church with a little bit of racism and favoritism. That ultimately all of these happen where he has to repent. He has to acknowledge that he was not moving in faith and faithfulness to Jesus, but what, what came most naturally for him. But the thing is that each time his faith was strengthened as Jesus once again pulled him out of the water. This is what prepared him and made it possible that, G- that Peter goes on to be killed for the faith, martyred, crucified upside down without denying Jesus like he did so many times, without his faith faltering like it did here. And the argument is, the truth of it is, that each of those moments over Peter's life prepared him for that that final moment. You see, these little and big moments of faith in our lives, whether it's the little daily moments where we wake up and we pray, even though we don't feel that Jesus is there, we lean in and we actually find him there. Or when we're going through moments like COVID-19 and there's been a layoff, there's been a loss of life in the family, that we've got symptoms for ourselves and we're terrified because of what's going on. And we find Jesus there saying, take heart, I am with you, is another moment where he pulls us up out of the water and we begin to take a few more steps. And that happens over the course of our whole lives, of our faith faltering and us beginning to sink, but Jesus being strong enough to pull us up and we take a few more steps. We learn to ride the bike of faith. The truth of it is, and this was pointed out to me by um, kind of a, a Yoda, um, Jim Cofield is, is his name, kind of spiritual Yoda for me, that so much of the movements of learning how to trust Jesus, of faith, is ultimately not only preparing us for, for greater movements of faithfulness and, and love and, and that sort of thing in our lives, but also to prepare us for that final moment when we take that final step into death. 
You see, that is the most terrifying reality that even more than just the uncertainty of a layoff or furlough or, or engagements or pregnancy, whatever's going on in your life. And there's that step that's, that's fearful. There is one bigger step that is coming that is the terrifying step into death. And where the, one of the great realities of the, his, the history of knowing Jesus and our personal experience of learning to trust him and find us with there is so that we might take that step one more time and find that Jesus is there to catch us and to hold us and to bring us ultimately with him in the resurrection. And, and that each moment, each day that we wake up and we find Jesus being faithful is preparing us to take that step for ourselves so that we, like so many saints before us, can sing hymns on their deathbed or like Peter is willing to be crucified upside down knowing that he is safe in the Jesus' arms. The one who caught him on the Sea of Galilee in this storm is the one who caught him as he went into death. And that death does not, I mean, this is, this, is, this is the gospel, all in this little wrapped up story here. And so that what is faith? Faith is calling Jesus Lord. It is asking for him to command us to follow him in the way of love. And it is asking him to save us. And that, that is not a linear step of Lord, and now, you know, uh, Jesus command me, and now Jesus save me. But that all of life is this circle of faith. And that that faith gets stronger and stronger over the course of our lives. Uh, ultimately to the day when faith becomes sight in the resurrection. So faith is, is, is that, is this circle and rhythm of doubt and fear and then faith all filling back around one another as we find not ourselves proving as faithful, but Jesus proving himself as faithful to us, to catch us each time. So final verse, verse 33, and then we'll wrap up. It's just a simple question, what is worship? And I didn't know what to call this one because it just closes with the disciples worshiping Jesus. They get into the boat, the, calm, the storm is calmed, and out of this, seeing him walk on water, catching Peter, and now getting into the boat and the water's calming, they begin to worship him. And this is an utterly fascinating response for Jewish men. For Jewish men, they prayed the Shema every single day that the Lord is one, we worship him only. But the disciples are beginning to get the implications of who Jesus is here. And so it says they worship him. Worship, not just in for us being a genre of music. James doesn't pull out the guitar and start playing, you know, Jesus, thanks for saving us on the water. Like Peter almost drowned, but you got it. Like that's not the worship song. The worship that breaks out is truly you are the son of God. This is the deep reality of what worship is. Worship is not a genre. It is not us singing together. Those are capacities and aspects of worship. But worship deeply underneath it is worth giving, worth shipping the worth of something, giving giving worth to something that deserves it. And they give the full worth of Jesus in acknowledging that he's the son of God. That he is the one that walks over the chaos waters and has the ability to calm them. This son of God is this theme that develops over Jesus's life where each moment something different is coming forward and who Jesus is. In this story we just read, Jesus see that he, Jesus displays to the disciples that he is the power of God. The son of God is the power of God over chaos. Back at his baptism earlier this year, we saw that Jesus is the true image of God into this broken world. In the sick that he comes and heals, we've seen that Jesus as the son of God is the healing of God over sickness, over the devil and demons, that Jesus is the victory of God over evil. The Roman centurion at Jesus' death who sees him and says, truly, this is the son of God, sees the self-giving love of God over sin. 
And on that first Easter, the disciples seeing the resurrected Son of God saw the life of God with power and resurrection over death itself. And so for you and me on the other side of Easter, for us in this year, for us historically, our faith is placed in the full revelation, the full identity of Jesus as the Son of God. And so he is the one that we call Lord, not just master and rabbi, but God himself, the God of Israel to us. We call for him to command us not just to walk on the waters of the sea, but to walk over the chaotic waters of the of, of broken power of evil and sin and darkness and death in this world to command us to walk even over those and to ask Jesus and see him as the Lord who can save us from chaos in this world and sin and darkness and death and evil. May you call Jesus Lord this week to find him as, as the deep authority and trust and source of peace this week. May you hear him calling you to walk on the waters of all that may come up this week and that he's inviting you to be with him. And as you falter in your faith, may you not take that and just allow that to be an anchor that drags you to the bottom, but as an opportunity to call out to Jesus and ask him to save you. So we'll see you next Sunday as we continue and hear once again, Jesus calling us to take heart that no matter what's going on in this world, he's overcome this world and he's with us. Amen.